I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, thanks very much on your Saturday night, Yanto Barker, founder and now managing director of Lacole for joining the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. First appearance in what I think has been a busy off-season for you and Lacole generally with the big news breaking just for the new year that you're back in the world tour with Bora Hansgrower. What was the logistics lot, you know, like with that both long term and then the month or six weeks before launching a sort of an agreement like that? It's a good question. Um, it's a very complex service that we provide. Uh, if you imagine a world store rider has maybe 50 or 60 products. And they all need to be, you know, exactly right. It's a precision garment. It's not, uh, it's, it's not a hoodie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's quite a lot of work that goes into making sure that, you know, it could be the, it could be a really nice jersey made of great fabrics, you know, really nicely specced and aero and everything. But if it doesn't fit, it's ruined. Do you know what I mean? Like one little feature is 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 kind of done. So um, there's quite a lot of work that goes into establishing you know, the basic heads of terms that you, you know, then unpack through a deal and a contract when it comes to supplying a World Tour team. That's not anywhere near as hard as when you actually start to meet the riders, size the riders, get to know what they want, understand their expectations, because ultimately there's a huge learning process for the for any business to supply a World Tour team. They they undergo incredible strain and stress over three-week grand tours and classics of 290Ks, etc. And, you know, they are pushing the limits in every way. So there's a high expectation. They're very demanding, rightly so. And it requires a very focused and dedicated approach to meet the satisfaction. You know, that's, that's a, it's a tough, it's a tough job. And for example, you got Vlasov just joined like six foot plus Russian. And then you got Agita just joined. Uh, five foot six yeah. Colombian. Are you are you custom doing just about their speed suits or their kit? Because those guys they don't fit off the rack stuff. No. Um, so we're not doing full custom. What you what you end up doing is you. I mean, generally cycling kit is made of lycra, so there's quite a lot of stretch anyway. Okay. So usually you're talking about length because what you would do is you would size a small and you would add or or take away length. But, you know, there are tolerances and I think the main body of garments actually, uh, I would say 80% of riders, you know, pretty fit them pretty well. Um, someone like Niels Pollitt actually is, is a bit more extreme than Vlasov, who um, he's a bit taller and, you know, still, I'm not sure exactly what his race weight is, but, you know, he's a tall, skinny guy, like all cyclists. Yeah. We do give them a little bit of extra features when they need it, but. It's usually a conversation with how the culture of that team has been set up. And there are certain teams that basically want to give every rider every opportunity to adjust and change everything. Now, I think 
from my own experience as a rider when even if it's a bike fit when it when it comes to like the opportunity to <clears throat> test and and get sized on it before the season that you're sponsoring which is what happens you don't get that long and you don't get to ride it so no individual how no matter how well they know themselves is going to get a sizing done on all the kit ask for a bunch of adjustments and then be exactly right even if the exact adjustment has been delivered exactly as asked so there's always this combing through process pretty much during training camp and the first few races where there has to be a level of adjustment because the guys are doing 30 hour weeks um and really putting the kit through its paces even even if everyone did their job exactly right you know there there are still things that need to be changed so it's that understanding and the relationship management of how that process works and stays strong because that can cause a bit of tension you know it might come across as criticism or yeah. like someone's failed or it's hard to find the root of what was not right because you know the brand will say we did what they asked and the and the team and the rider will say it's not what i wanted you know there's a gap yeah, it yeah. it's actually not important who's responsible what's important is that you get to an answer or you get to a solution so those things are really important i would say in the long term you know supply of a world tour team because you're you are definitely going to encounter challenges and issues and it's not trying to avoid that it's trying to design a process that answers the problems quickly finds solutions efficiently and satisfies everybody in the long term and going back into world tour with bora sort of going back a step to the thoughts behind before it even happened you were the apparel provider to Bahrain when they were Bahrain McLaren a couple of years ago and McLaren um, sort of changed there and then we're out of world tour for a year or so now back in what for a, an apparel brand trying to be the best apparel brand in the world what's the marketing rationale like for being in world tour just like sometimes giant bikes they, I think they almost decided, actually, we're not going to do this, but then they're now back in with Bike Exchange. What, what's the thought process behind it? I think it's probably a little bit different for every brand. So I'll answer the question specifically for us. We, and I personally, am incredibly passionate about a building a, a performance brand. Like, I don't want to be average. And I'm not interested in mediocrity in basically any way. Uh, it just kind of frustrates me and irritates me. So when we think about, well, how do you activate that message? How do you connect with an audience and engage those qualities? If that's what we're trying to infuse this brand with, you need competition. You need an arena where you can uh, demonstrate the quality and um, performance of your products uh, you know against others so the world tour is a really perfect opportunity and i think it gives you so much content it's a very pivotal message that you get lots of then spin-off messages coming around um and it it's also pretty global like it, it touches everybody we sell to 150 or 60 countries pretty much someone in all of those countries is watching the world tour watching the tour de france so you kind of get to the center of it and you get validation so you get you know every day watching someone you know vlasov or whoever riding tour de france and and you know on those mountain stages with those epic backgrounds which 
foster so much kind of romance of the sport anyway slightly less romantic when you've done it because you know how hard it is but for all those people who've never done and just dreamt of being a pro bike rider but had to get you know desk jobs of some sort or another that romance is really strong for them and the and the way you connect with an audience around a team and and riders performing in those kind of environments is quite compelling it's it's you know i i i am an ex-pro bike rider i like watching you know I quite like watching like rainy days or, you know, hardcore gritty days when the guys have had to really grit their teeth and get through some savage kind of conditions. I just think how it brings such a impressive quality of a, of a person when, um, when you kind of witness that. So for me to have my kit there as well, it's like, that's what I'm about. That's what we're about. And we love a challenge. You know, we want, we want to be challenged. We want to meet a challenge. We want to, do better than anyone else in the challenge you know that's that's our passion that's why i get up every day and go to work yeah i guess there's there's two options there's marketing through just i guess non-structured racing on digital media or on a bit on linear media but yeah it's hard to especially with lacole's messaging which is about performance as well it's not about if it's just like we have the best looking kit then it's like well why you you know cost a lot of money and inventory to being world tour while is that is it worth it but i i guess it makes more sense for for lacole how long does it take i have no idea and i think this is it's kind of murky with world tour like how these sponsorships come about because you see it announced and you're like okay that that's happened but how long is it like a one-year tender is it like 10 months is it sort of soft talking for a bit and then it warms up a little bit or is it, I guess it, it's probably different for every brand or and every, it, every it will be different. Well. Yeah, definitely. But it's kind of how you would expect it to be. You know, it's like if you see a girl across the room and you're like, Hey, how's it going? I like your dress or whatever. You know, it's kind of like that. You know, you, you kind of get a, you get a little bit of contact, someone messages on LinkedIn or, um, there's a, a friend of a friend has put you know introduced you or something and it's like hey guys you know this is coming to an end we're interested in something and then okay. you kind of start with i i start with the soft stuff like who is this person you know do i like them that's really important this is like my considerations if i layer them out for you and can i imagine working with them what are they going to be like under pressure you know uh like all the things how much integrity do i think they're going to uphold and all that kind of stuff then once I get past that, then it's like, okay, so technically, what what are you looking for? How much of this, and what what's the contribution got to be? Um, how I, I always look at how good they are at making decisions, because a classic, you, you can be a bit of a fall guy as a supplier if you're not careful. So in the supply of a, a world tour team kit package, there is a thousand decisions that go back and forth, signed off adjusted not signed off asked for an update updated sent back asked for an update again sent back adjusted signed off boxed off moved on to the next thing do you know what i mean like you do thousands of things now every single back and forth every single interaction is time is focus is attention to detail and if one side or the other isn't focusing properly then mistakes will creep through stuff slips through the gaps and almost always the supplier is deemed as failed to do it on time but actually there's a real need for both sides to respect the process 
focus on the process, give it their full attention and make sure they get back in timely in a timely fashion because you've got thousands of thousands of decisions to make and you can't be taking 50% too much time in the first 50 because you're just going to run out of time by the 500th. Do you know what I mean? So when I'm thinking about contracts, and this isn't just World Tour Team, by the way, this is all, all contracts and all partnerships, which you know will always be a headache if you got it wrong. Even if they're small, they're still a headache because especially if it's out in the open in the, in the public domain, you have uh, a reputation attached to that. You have, yeah. you know, there's going to be shit thrown if it falls out and all that kind of stuff. So like, it's really important to get to know who you're dealing with across the table and how are they going to operate? And, and, you know, those things are really important. So actually with, um, with world tour team, like I really want to know they can make clear, decisive decisions that understand the reality that there's going to be compromises somewhere, somehow, at some time, and they can't just hold out for perfection because we'll just run out of time. Yeah, and that's what it's even scared me. Like I thought, oh, okay, I'll have an off-season. Lombardia finished. I was like, I swear Lombardia finished a week ago in October. And I'm like, what? <laughs> because for me, like the uh, a lot of the most of my assets in Lantern Rouge Media is rights agreements and photo license agreements and no one responds, no one's going to respond, no race organizer responds in season. And then about November, it starts people find their access to their emails again. And I get it because they're trying to organize a race, uh, which is a lot of logistics. And then people go on Christmas break. And so literally I've been still haven't signed one of them. And last year I hadn't signed one of them and I was already covering the races. So it's like, that's why I try to start them a bit a bit earlier but pivoting away from world tour a little bit and i think lacole's not just their journey's been from like 2008 uh and you've been sort of supporting it's been like a gradual build-up with wiggins team and etc but going back to 2008 what is the difference now if you were to start a kid apparel company now the environment there is there wasn't instagram back in 2008 there wasn't uh, there was YouTube, but it wasn't that big in 2008. What's the difference if you were starting one now to back then, or how do you see the environments as different? It's a really good question. I mean, there are so many ways. I'm trying to think about how to distill it down to like the top three key influencing factors that would be different. And I think the world is so much more connected now, and it moves faster. You can reach more people. There's more information being circulated around the world, like in so many ways, than there was in 2008. And you know, every year that goes by, it just seems to get faster and, and quicker and slicker, and you know, all that kind of thing. So, it's really important that you recognize what would be required at the time you're starting a business in the industry and in in the sector that you are. There's no point me looking at. Uh, an ideal which is just out of date by 10 years because the internet came in or like you say instagram kicked in yeah. and you know thing, things are different now so some of the, the biggest thing i think that would be required to start a business an apparel business now is more money um i think because basically you're competing with successful brands that are getting sharper and faster at connecting to the audience so I'll just kind of illustrate this in the way that uh, like older cycling brands, even today, are predominantly sold via distributor agreements worldwide and retail agreements. 
they the older brands and there's only a couple of new ones that are really starting to do it well um they don't have a direct relationship with their customer they have a relationship with a distributor or a retailer and that is a weakness in the modern world when now if you've got the money and the resource and the insight and you hire the right people you can target huge demographics around the world selling directly to them cutting out distributor cutting out retailer taking a better margin and competing much harder with uh, the community and loyalty that you're fostering from a customer because you're talking to them directly. You're, sh you're showing them why you're the best. You're speaking to them if they let you, you know, uh, if they click the sign up to email box, then you can just have a, you can have so much of a more direct conversation with them. Now that didn't really happen eight, eight nine, 10, 11 years ago. Um, and if you started a business, you know, let's say a little bit before me, 2005, and then are, tr are transitioning across that sort of 2010, 2015, and now 2022, you would have to flex that and you would have to adjust your business to accommodate. Now, the problem with older brands is it's very difficult for them to accommodate because they would have to cut off a huge amount of their revenue because you're, you would they would then be competing with a built up history of relationships and and sales if they let's say these retailers which they're then then now trying to compete with by going direct to the consumer well it's like well how do you even just like uh and all that kind of you, you're going to put your own prices up in the way that that's going to kind of affect your business so i think that's the main thing the, the thing that remains is there's a very low barrier to entry to manufacturing clothing and I say this oh, really? without. Well, yeah, that's where I thought. That's where this. I thought the money would come in. I thought there'd be sort of. Yeah. it'd be hard to break in. Well, exactly. Well, it's not hard to break in. It's hard to get off the ground. So getting in the door is easy. Getting kind of up and up and away is a much much harder thing. So I'll explain it like this: any young kind of ambitious startup person, entrepreneur, whatever, can draw some sketches, some designs on their kitchen table. And I'm kind of saying, this is what I did. Uh, send, it to a, send it to a factory and say, hey, can you call this my brand, white label it, and I'll come and adjust a few things and you know, put a yeah. different color zip on or something. That, right, that's my brand, there it is, Lacole. But the difference between starting and selling to a few of my mates, which you know, if you're passionate about the product and it's half decent, you will sell some. You'll sell some to your direct network and the community that you meet around you. For every increment away from you, the middle, let's say me, as, a, as the founder of a brand, it costs so much more money and it takes so much more sophistication to engage with that consumer, especially today when there's so much noise, there's so many pictures and adverts and brands and you know it's hard to cut through. Every time, so it's someone that I don't know or someone in a different country or someone you know around the world or a different hemisphere, those are all obstacles that need money and insight to cross the gap of that's the bit that most founders who start especially like me who are quite technical so i'm a, i'm an ex-pro so i think i know what i need to wear i know what it needs to feel like i know what sensations physically i need to get when it's doing a good job and i'll recognize when it's not delivering but i have to kind of almost forget about that for a while and really focus and dial into the marketing the message the positioning and how to cut through all the other brands with all their money and all their insight to make sure that people hear and listen to me more than Rafa, Asos, Castelli, whoever. 
And that's that's actually a really tricky job. And a lot of people never quite get their heads around it. So never fully build the strength of that arm of the business to deliver because the kit could be the best kit in the world. If no one knows about it, you're not selling enough. Like it's really simple. Yeah. And even I, I swear I saw two days ago something specialized even saying they were thinking about doing some direct to consumer stuff. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that's, I mean, they've, their prices have inflated. I don't know how many, 250% since I started cycling, maybe more. And then maybe like Canyon, who's been that direct to consumer from day one, sort of the new brand, your style brand, you, you mentioned, maybe they do have an advantage. Maybe they have better margins. I don't know, but it seems like so all bikes I, are more expensive to me. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they probably are. I mean, there's inflation, which is enough to actually make a difference for a start. And now with COVID in the supply chain, there's a little yeah. bit of advantage taking of the noise, but there is also some absolutely it, like fundamental issues with supply of certain materials that are just going to put prices up or, or you know, transport is, is having an effect. So a direct-to-consumer model versus your old-fashioned, I call it old-fashioned because that's generally how it worked. Um, it's harder to get off the ground, but once you do, it's a stronger business model to compete. But the amount of businesses that will just fail against the wall without getting over it is the cost um, of that of that model. So the ones that do get over, and the Canyon is the perfect example, an incredible business model, um, so successful. Um, but but it, you know it's it's really hard. Do you think COVID and maybe it's stopped a bit now? Do you think it's supercharged? just general interest in cycling. I think from me looking at the social media space, like YouTube views and like Francis Cade, he just went to the next level on YouTube when he took advantage. He got content right and pivoted during COVID. Um, do you think that generally people, like was there, did the business grow faster than you expected? And is that is that continuing? Yeah, it's a really good question. And there are so many different layers to it. So Yes, during like during lockdown, especially when countries and governments were were saying, well, one, they closed all the public places, and two, they said, if you're going to go out, go and exercise. Like that's like a huge, massive endorsement that just supercharged 2020, for instance. And um, it's it it kind of stayed all of 2020, 2021, the first half of the year, and I think all all uh, retail will will kind of get this similar um rhythm to the way this is this has occurred so when lockdown opened in the middle of 21 i think it was was it may or something june um everybody suddenly had so many more choices to make and different ways to spend their money and it started to really kick in to how uh, how much is coming through you know sports apparel or you know online e-com that was doing really well anything to do with at home um gardening products or um online not online, but um, at home, do-it-yourself kits of whatever sort. Um, they obviously did really well. Um, but So that did happen, and then there was a bit of a slowdown, and it also was like quite counterintuitive because there wasn't the same seasons that we're all used to dealing with, which are important when it comes to how much stock you've got each month and how long it's going to last and when it's going to sell, and you know, managing your cash flow on a month-by-month basis requires quite careful forecasting. And you get a little bit wrong and it can get it can get quite tight kind of thing. So that kind of threw a lot of things out of kilter, which is quite hard to forecast and understand what the implications are going to be. Is it going to be a month? Is it going to be six months? Is it going to be 18 months? 
and then how to forecast that has been really hard which i think a lot of people have done you know that's that's a real danger because there's always this fomo that if we don't buy more stock then we won't do the sales and someone else is going to get that sale so we better just get it in and then you're like uh it's slowed down a lot and you know we've got too much what do we do it, and you're on fire sale and all sorts so it's really tricky so the thing the counter to all of that for us let's say which was really good in 2020 and first half of 21 um is the public sentiment to what they do with their money changed with the prospect of another lockdown this winter and uh, more restrictions and you know two, three, four more years worth of disruption, people started to get nervous and want to save rather than invest into their health. So in the first year, 18 months, it was like, yeah, great, buy a new bike, buy more kit. And you know we were all yeah. seeing the articles of it's totally sold out. Now there's a bit of a sort of hang on a second. How long is this going to go on for? And maybe I should just be a bit more cautious. Do you know what I mean? And that is definitely something that has happened, but I think it will find its equilibrium as confidence comes back that the world is settled again and we're not going to be thrown into these huge swings of, um, you know, uh, kind of disruption and just unprecedented activity that, that has just been stopped in a way. Yeah, it's like you can only do sort of your six-month health kick for six months or get excited about it and then if it just becomes almost a constant thing where you're not going to get excited again. I think yeah. a lot of people have seen that. I mean, I've moved from Australia to Andorra, so that sort of – there were no restrictions here and it's almost like COVID didn't exist here. And I guess people like pros were just living their normal life. But, yeah, I think in – other countries, it particularly the UK, like you had a, a hard lockdown. I'm not sure when, but pivoting more to sort of back to back to UCI official cycling, but not World Tour at least yet. Lacole are now the title sponsor, well, the first title sponsor of Lacole Wahoo UCI women's team. What is the? So that, that's a a bigger. Not, I don't want to say bigger, but you're you're the title sponsor of the team as opposed to Bora, where you're the um apparel provider what are you seeing in women's cycling at the moment from someone who is as has been investing or the call has been investing for several years in women's cycling particularly with the tour de france femme avec swift coming on board like is that as a sponsor title sponsor do you see that and think right this is really moving where i want to see it yeah i mean it's fantastic can i kind of just give you a little bit of background around like um, the drops team where we first started sponsoring them and we were just apparel providers. And then as it's moved into Lacole Wahoo has been a bit of a journey and a, a lot of it is attached to the experience we went through with Joss and the hour record. I know you're, you might've been about to ask a question about her a bit later, but there's, there's a relevance to her in this process. When she did that hour record, I watched it live on YouTube and we, you know, we assisted a lot to make sure that it was a world record and not just a national record um, with the support that she needed um, and all the things that we had to do from the paperwork side and UCI compliance and all that kind of stuff. When I watched that that attempt, which she obviously succeeded, it was probably one of my most gratifying moments as a business person sponsoring and supporting someone so well-deserving and watching her succeed was like the best feeling 
like almost the best feeling I've had in sport since I retired. So to kind of distill that and put that into the team when we have a full title sponsor and it's not, you know, Aperol providers, it's a level up and it yeah. satisfies that same, you know, enjoyment of investing into incredible athletes who are undervalued. They don't get the same equality and just the whole recognition of how hard they work and, and what they're doing. And to me, it's just the right thing to do. And as a brand, it would be remiss of us not to give it the same attention and, and push as hard as we can to get them in the, the, you know, the Women's Tour de France um, as soon as we can, whether it's, whether it's this year or the next year, and, and get them up to World Tour. So ideally, we want two World Tour teams, a men and a women's. And we've, we've kind of gone for a slightly longer term view with the women's that we're not badging one that exists already. We, we're going to really try and take one there. But, the, you know, the girls are, and I kind of know them well enough to feel really proud of what they do and, and how hard they work. And, you know, I follow them on Instagram and I kind of, I don't manage the relationship, so I'm not that close. That's Rob and Simon, my, my team of marketeers. Um, but I'm really engaged in the journey that we're going through with women's cycling and what it means for the sport. And I've got a daughter, you know, and I want to make sure that she knows that opportunities are there for her. And, you know, her dad's recognized that it's important. You can't just, you know, just do the men's that's, it's bad. Yeah. And I think more and more businesses are cottoning onto this and also realizing not just that it's the right thing to do, but hold on. There's like a huge marketing opportunity here. We have teams that are, you know, you can get access now to the Tour de France or other races. I think there's like 70 race days at Women's World Tour level next, or this year rather, 2022, which is a huge step up. It's more and more, more and more televised. And we need to get our brand there as well, I think. And I think we'll see more and more teams and there's going to be a fight to, which is good because when that happens, the economic cycle, that means salaries go up. Uh, and he yeah. already riders are telling me from the Women's World Tour, like, yeah, it's different even to four years ago where it's like, you know, people say it's a privilege to get a spot and you get like a stipend almost. It's getting better in that aspect. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because having been a kind of amateur cyclist for a long time, it's a, it's, it's a kind of similar vibe where, you know, you're good and you, and you deserve it, but you're just not, there just isn't the buoyancy in the market. There aren't the teams and there isn't the competition required to pump things up a bit. You know, it's not pump things up to overinflate them. It's pump things up to where they should be. Do you know what I mean? This is this is global women's cycling, and there should be enough for everyone in the world to at least, and, and a bit more, to earn a really good living. They work hard for it, and they deserve it. Um, and they are delivering value with the exposure they get and the content that can be created. And all the same things about the men's team, about validation and, you know, proving themselves and the romance of... You know, the women's Paris-Roubaix was incredible to watch, like absolutely incredible. Um, no, absolutely no less um, engaging and entertaining than the men's. And also I think they've, so originally women's Paris-Roubaix, it was on a Saturday and Sunday last year because it was rescheduled into October and I think there might have even been like elections or something in the local government. It was then supposed to be this year on the same Sunday. And then I see in the calendar ASO or UCI have put it, back to Saturday, Sunday, uh, which I think is good, like from a selfish perspective, because I'm like, I only have so many as a, let's call me a journalist for want of a better word. Um, I can now cover the women's on one day properly. And I think even that people are figuring out how to do it 
even better. But the last sort of last question, and you might not be able to to tell us what do you see? Well, what might Lacole be looking like in one year? Or what is there anything in twenty twenty two that we should really be looking out for that you're moving into uh, like a a new speed suit or anything like that? Any tidbits? <laughs> uh, isn't isn't a new world tour team enough? <laughs> that's that's already announced. You, that's we've already know, spoken about that. You got this coming. You. <laughs> it's quite a big deal. <laughs> um, there is there is another speed suit, and it is definitely faster. So one of the things I've been doing. So the legacy of the McLaren relationship is I work directly with one of the aerodynamicists. Okay, and we've been working together basically just making so many suits so our understanding of performance it's not like we're we're smarter than everybody else but i think genuinely we are probably investing more into the resource required to learn understand and then design off that insight and so i'm i'm really proud of the progress that we've been able to make over the last even just last seven or eight months and working with matt from mclaren has been an incredible process he's a really really cool guy so passionate about his aerodynamics and fabrics are so nuanced so you really do need to understand the size of a rider the speed of a rider your angles trips like they they really do make a difference and as i keep trying to explain my marketing department they want to make headlines that are binary you know fastest and it's like it genuinely aerodynamics for riders on a bicycle made with fabrics it's not binary because in every way you could disprove with a certain combination of environmental circumstances it is no longer true so you know the difference between 40 k's an hour and 70 k's an hour 40 k's an hour being fairly slow early part of a race in the breakaway or whatever 70 k's an hour being sam bennett sprinting last 150 200 meters like they're completely different products to be optimum in those uh, for those purposes so um basically just working hard on understanding and then tailoring and designing fit for purpose even if it's with the same team to get to get ahead of everybody and stay ahead of everybody and even trying to get two or three iterations that we'll bring through and release and i've got them kind of in my back pocket kind of thing so that's a, that's a big part of what will be announced. And there is a new, there will be a new McLaren suit, which is exciting okay. with the collaboration, which is also can, yeah, yeah. There's a new McLaren suit. Okay. That's, that's. <laughs> <laughs> with, with the speed suits though, is that, is that a lost leader where you're proving performance and that provides a story to the whole of the business? Because it's not going to be as high a volume in sales as it, in jerseys and, and bibs. It is, Oh, is is that how you envision it or is it just we need to have the best speed suit if we're going to call ourselves the the best performance cycling apparel i'm gonna divide the answer into a couple of categories my definition of a lost leader is we made it for 200 pounds and we sold it for 150 pounds or uh we didn't sell any or we just made a few prototypes and we got the proof in the tunnel and then we made the headline okay. the suit is the suit is good the suit you know is sold at an rrp that makes money where it's commercial 
Um, but the the bit where you kind of that does connect to your loss leading kind of comment or question is we don't buy thousands and thousands and we don't sell thousands and thousands. It's quite niche, it's quite specialist, and there aren't, you know, as many people who are willing to part with that much money and who care about their speed as much as someone who just wants a really nice jersey to go out on a Sunday with the mates. So it's it's caught is carefully um kind of created the the whole commercial package for the suit but it you know it really is fit for amateur cyclists who want to do their best or be their best it will make a huge difference to any shorts and jersey out on the market okay that makes sense yeah i, I think they're becoming more and more common and i guess in the uk especially everyone all the time trial sort of scene is huge in the uk um, as compared to maybe some other countries. So, yeah. What's, what's interesting is, sorry, I won't go on too much about this. No, but, no. Uh, the, um, uh, there, are, there are second cats in the UK who are more keen to be aero than very well-paid world tour riders. And oh, that doesn't I surprise me at all. Lot. Yeah, I thought about this a lot. And, it, and I, I kind of, my assessment is tradition is the barrier to progress because you're attached to the past as tradition. Whereas if your job, and I love the way Alex Dowsett talks about this, if your job is winning bike races, if someone said you can get guaranteed one watt saving out of this, it's remiss of you not to do that. So I, I'm kind of going through this process at the moment. So um, Ryan, Ryan Mullen is on the Bora team. And he is super keen on his aero stuff, which is fantastic. And I kind of need him. I need, I'm going to have a conversation with him because I kind of need him to explain to the guys, why would you ever pick not the speed suit or the fastest bit of kit in your wardrobe for every single race? Don't, don't wear a shorts and jersey. It's for training when it doesn't matter. When you've just got to do a 20-minute power, it doesn't matter how fast you go because there's no one else there. Do, do it in your shorts and jersey. When it comes to you're competing against everyone else on the start line, don't give away 0.01 of a percent of speed because of tradition. It's, it's crazy. I think that most World Tour teams would make more money in sponsorship in the long run if they went with an apparel provider or a sponsor where they almost they, they just got the kit provider or even they paid for the kit. As long as it actually was the fastest, made all the guys wear it, won more races, and then your title sponsors will pay more because the title sponsors obviously pay the most. But yeah, like I think every time I think of breakaways in the big uh, Tour de France, and I see guys on like a five foot ten guy on forty two centimeter bars, or yeah, wearing a helmet where I can see all his hair. Um, yes, yeah. if it be archery, it doesn't matter, or not wearing aero socks. These are small things that don't even like wearing different socks, they don't even bother you. Bars, okay, maybe it's a bit more uncomfortable, but it's yeah. unbelievable. At the tour, it's unbelievable. It is, it's, it's mind boggling. And I think a lot of guys look at someone like Ala Philippe who wins anyway and go, Well, there you go, but he's special. <laughs> Plus, he would win more if he wore a suit. Well, as I had an argument once with someone who, who I said Valverde tactically actually isn't very good, not all the time. And they're like, oh, but he's won 140 races. I was like, yeah, because most of his career he's been 60 kilos with a 1,200 watt for 15-second sprint up a hill. So it's hard not to win a lot of races. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. When you break it down, like it's incredible. I, I really I really enjoy this, actually. And it's it's weird for me because as a rider – 
my intellect was more advanced than my physical ability. So I was always held back by, I just can't, I genuinely can't produce any more power. Yeah. But I understand what to do. Like I got every last bit out of myself uh, from a tactical and strategic point of view and positioning and all those other things, the softer elements of racing that is not just horsepower. And in business, it's really interesting because there's no limits. It's all intellect. So if I, I don't need to do IT or marketing or, you know, whatever, I just, I, I hire the best person to do that. And I can, I can see and identify that's what needs to happen next. And I can just get the best. Whereas as a rider, I have to get over the hill myself. I have to do the sprint myself. I have to go in the breakaway myself. It's a completely different kind of setup. It's quite interesting. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thanks very much, Yanta. I'll let you get back to your to your Saturday evening for joining the podcast. That was like a really interesting conversation on business, etc. And I think everyone will really appreciate it. And I guess thanks directly uh, publicly from from myself for uh, your and Nicole's support for Lantern Rouge Locking Podcast. Uh, we we really uh, appreciate I'm, it. I'm a massive fan, Patrick. Keep up the good work <laughs> and look forward to catching up again soon. All right. Thanks, Yanto. Cheers.